Hi, and welcome to Measure the Metric, a podcast about engineering monuments, the people who built them, and the people who use them. My name is Vivian Yu. My name is John Julius. I'm a civil engineer. I'm married to a civil engineer. In every episode, we're going to pick one engineering monument. Maybe it's ancient, or maybe it's brand spanking new. Hot off the presses. From somewhere in the world. Uh, We're going to tell you all sorts of things about it. When it was built, where it was built. This is not funny anymore. You're going to learn so much. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Let's jump right into it. I would bet that quite a few of you probably saw the title to this episode and wondered, what is this? So you may not have heard about this. And I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation because I don't speak Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> but today we're going to talk about the Huoshenshan Hospital. <laughs> Huoshenshan? I don't know. Oh, I can't do it. It's a new hospital. That's right. Yes. We're not going to talk specifically only about this hospital. We're going to talk about Huoshenshan Hospital and Leishenshan Hospital. Now, these two hospitals were constructed in 10 days in Wuhan, China, as a response to COVID-19. Okay. So were they built like simultaneously or like 10 days each? Do we build two hospitals in 10 days or two hospitals in 10 days each? They were built concurrently. And I think Li Shan was commissioned just several days after the Huashanshan hospital was opened. That's insane. Yeah, absolutely. We'll go over some quick stats. I'm sure everyone knows what COVID-19 is at this point, and I'm not going to go too deep into the history of the disease, but just that this is a response to the pandemic and basically the epicenter of China, and that's where this all started. Yeah. Also, if you're listening to this in, you know, a few years after 2020, if you're if you're <laughs> from the future, COVID-19 was a virus that spread very quickly and caused a lot of problems in the world in 2020. That's right. January 24th this year, the year 2020, was when construction on the Huoshenshan Hospital started. And by February 3rd, it was commissioned to be opened. It was 10 days from start to finish. It had a thousand beds. Cool. And it was, despite how quickly it was put together and how temporary it was, it is actually one of the most advanced with a lot of advanced technology. Nice. In terms of a medical facility. It's a quarantine hospital designated to treat patients with COVID only. So there would be no other medical treatment that would be provided there, Hmm. at least not where it's intended. It was staffed by 1,400 medical staff from the armed forces. Okay. And it's located just on the outskirts of Wuhan City. Okay. And I'm not sure if everyone knows where Wuhan is. If you know your rough geography of China, Hong Kong being kind of the southeast coast. Yeah. Right? Beijing kind of being right in the north, kind of the same latitude as North Korea. So quite 
okay. north of it. Yeah, yeah. If you were to draw a straight line between Hong Kong and Beijing and kind of Wuhan is just about in the middle of that. And 11 million people. Okay, so big. Pretty big. Okay. How close is Beijing to like the eastern edge? Like is Wuhan like a coastal city or is it like inland a fairways? Yeah, that's a good question. So if you imagine the coast of China on the east side, it's it, it kind of rounds out. So Hong Kong is on the coast. Beijing is kind of on the coast. But... Wuhan is not because okay. it's where the coast bumps out. Yeah. And actually, if you went directly to the coast from Wuhan, you would kind of hit Shanghai. Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. You can always look at a map if you're listening to this. That's right. <laughs> I'm not going to do all the work for you. So it was 2,500 square meters, the footprint of this one hospital. Okay. It had 20 different blocks. So I'll describe it in a little bit more detail when I talk about how it was constructed. But the blocks were basically kind of like wings of a hospital. And they had 20 of these blocks branching out from like a central kind of spine, a central hallway okay. of the hospital. It had two floors. Yep. And it was constructed using prefabricated modules that were already assembled and just kind of put together like Lego pieces on site. Nice. It was based on the blueprint of the Xiao Tengshan Hospital, which was built in seven days in 2003. <sighs> right. As a response to the SARS outbreak. Okay. Needless to say, China is kind of pretty good at this. Yeah. At this point. <laughs> they, they know a thing or two about building a hospital quick. That's right. There were a lot of workers, obviously, construction workers, engineers, specialists of all sorts. And I think the logistics of building a hospital in such a short period of time, such a major facility, I'm going to be going into some of the logistics of things that you probably don't even think about. Right. Of the specialists that you're going to need. And I can guarantee you that I haven't thought about this. <laughs> so... The second hospital, the Leishenshan Hospital, was completed February 8th. So the first one was completed February 3rd, second one completed February 8th. Okay. So very close together. And the one hospital cost 1 billion renminbi, yep. which converted to about 143 million American dollars. Okay. Now, is that a lot of money for a hospital or is that a cheap hospital? I don't know what hospitals cost. Well... I think you maybe want to put this in context of what is done with it now, which is that it was actually closed down by April and is no longer in use. Okay. Okay. So $143 million for something that was like, I mean, it was ad hoc, Yeah. right? So it was built for a purpose. and That's right. Yeah. Okay. But that's a really good question. And actually, I have some stats here about conversions of existing facilities, because there's been a lot of work that's been done around the world right now to convert stadiums or convention centers into hospital facilities as a response rather than building brand new, right? Yeah. And in China, they did a lot of this as well because they kind of needed the two-pronged attack. They needed so many more beds. They needed to ramp up so quickly. They had to convert existing facilities and build new. But basically... Building the new facility cost 1 billion RMB for okay. 1,000 beds, okay? Yeah. When they converted 
a stadium, they were able to add 12,000 beds. So 12 times more beds yeah. for 1.1 billion renminbi. Okay. Right? Yeah. So your per bed cost of adding it was 10 times more to build a new hospital facility. Yeah. And it's not like the stadiums are in use right now. That's right. That's exactly it. And it is temporary. So there's a case to be made for if you can, it would probably be a lot more economical to convert civilian buildings yeah. that are not in use. Yeah. But I'm going to go more into how that's done later on. Cool. An interesting fact, the two hospitals, the Huoshenshan and the Lishenshan, the words actually come from the words, the Fire God Mountain Hospital and the Thunder God Mountain Hospital. Okay. And there's some superstition there about how, like in Chinese medicine, the lung is governed by metal and fire overcomes metal? And somehow, I, you know what? Like, I myself don't understand my own culture superstition, but that was the idea. I mean, it's all made up anyways, so. <laughs> but anyway, Hua is fire, and Li, however you pronounce that, is thunder. So the Hua Shenshan is the fire god's hospital. And right. the, I mean, I guess it's not that different from, like, calling your hospital, like, Olympus or something. yeah. Olympus are like saint, right? Yeah, yeah that's we name right. hospitals after saints. That's so. That's it, saint so yeah. and so. So you can think of it that way. Yeah. This is where we normally go into the history part of our podcast. Yeah. But I mean, the history started in 2019. Right. Effectively. But I'm going to I'm going to go a little bit further back. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about SARS. In 2003, SARS became known from the Guangdong province and it had a major impact to Hong Kong and parts of China before it spread to more countries. Mm -hmm. And so there were a number of months from January to April in 2003 where the government kind of downplayed what was happening there and they downplayed the numbers and the fatalities and the spread and the infectivity. And it was... It was very detrimental to the numbers. Like China was not able to control this epidemic of SARS. And right. SARS is, you know, within the same family of virus as COVID. They're both yeah. coronaviruses. Yeah. By the end of April, China established 2 billion renminbi to fight SARS. And that's what led to the construction of their first rapid construction hospital, which was constructed in seven days. Right. Right. So April 23rd built this hospital. By June, the SARS epidemic was pretty much over. Okay. So it was in use for about a month. And this whole kind of fiasco led China to really pump up their own responsiveness to epidemics. Right. And monitoring and, you know, what they would do to make sure that they actually share the data to the global community so that, you know, things like vaccines or studying of the virus could be done. Right. So a little bit more collaborative. That's right. Yeah. So SARS is kind of the trigger for that. Right. And it was really important. 
they invested 6.8 billion renminbi to construct a three-tiered network of like disease control and prevention. And it mm. is part of the reason why we were able to actually control H1N1 and a number of the flu epidemics that kind of like yeah, came about and fizzled up. out. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time in 2019, when COVID hit, China was a bit more prepared for this, yeah. right? And and we can all say, like, I'm sure there's an argument to be made for how China is still responding to it and the numbers that they're reporting. Like, I really... <laughs> it's a little sketchy. Yeah, I, I'm not going to get into that because, like, I just don't know enough politically about it. Sure. Nor do I think anyone does. But <laughs> <laughs> basically, their response in comparison to SARS has been a lot quicker, if nothing else. Okay, so wait, so their response to COVID compared to SARS- That's right. Has been quicker. Yeah. Yeah. So remember with SARS, it took at least like four months before they got their act together. Yeah. And so when COVID hit, they understood immediately just the need for beds, for equipment, for medical facilities. Mm -hmm. And so- when COVID started, it was December 2019, and it was just around like right before the Lunar New Year, which if you guys don't know, Lunar New Year in China and for Chinese culture is basically Christmas time. Like it's when you travel lots. It's when yeah. you see your family. You get two weeks off. Like, yeah, that's it's, it's when you go outside to the crowded streets. And that's right. Yeah. And you would go and visit your family, whether they're provinces away or whatever. So there's yeah. lots of mingling, lots of traveling, lots of contact. And it was probably the worst time for something so contagious to start. Right. Bad timing. By January 7th, the WHO was alerted and knew that this was a new virus. Yeah. And it was the 2019 novel coronavirus. There's so many names. I'm just going to keep calling it covid by mid-January, it had spread to the U.S., Nepal, France, Australia, Malaysia, Singapore, South Korea, a lot of places, right? So by January 24th, now this is roughly a month after China knew about it, yeah. more or less, but January 24th, construction on the Huoshenshan Hospital has started. Okay. By January 30th, the WHO had declared it a global emergency. It has spread to more countries in Europe, for example, and in the Middle East. And by February 2nd, the construction on the hospital was done. Okay, wow. And they moved on to equipment installation. And February 3rd, so the next day, it was open for operations. Jeez. So February 3rd, the hospital opens. Yeah. March 11th the WHO declared it a pandemic, <laughs> right? Okay, so like, just think about yeah. the time we're working with. Yeah, like it's, it's a tight, tight schedule. That's it's, right. Yeah. China has, you know, we can criticize it for a lot of things that they're, and a lot of ways they're handling this, but like, I cannot imagine anything moving as fast as this has. Yeah. So that's our very short history. <laughs> <laughs> On, on this. Why did they build it? Because they had to, right? Yeah. Something is happening. Let's respond, right? right? They have the centralized control and they can just decide what they're going to do with their money, with their resources. 
Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I started digging into what it takes to build a hospital. Yes. A hospital is obviously a, a building, but it's got special needs. It's got very unique needs mm-hmm. that makes building hospitals different from building anything else. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to start talking about what you need to worry about when you... Okay, wait. Can I guess? There's, yeah. there's two things that when I think of a hospital, I think, okay, you're going to need these two things. Sure. Okay. Ventilation, HVAC, and high amperage power. Yep, definitely. Yeah. And strong floors. <laughs> Why no, strong so, floors? Well, so because you have, I don't know, like an MRI machine or whatever. I think that those are big. Okay, yeah, you got to build your your building for the equipment that is stores, yeah. right? For so, sure. No, the floors thing was kind of a joke. But but yeah, so when I think of a hospital, those are the two where I'm just like, okay, ventilation and, and high like power deliverability. Yeah. What else? What am I missing? One of the first things that you need to think about in terms of a hospital, and maybe you've played one of those Sims games. No, I stay away from those like the plague <laughs> because I'm not good. But the first thing you probably need to think about is layout. Yep. Right. So the layout of a hospital is really important. You have so many different types of people that need to visit so many different places of the hospital for different reasons. And there are different exposure levels in different parts of the hospital. Yes. So you need to be able to allow for separation of certain people because you don't want people who are really contagious to be able to access, you know, the waiting room or, or the public washroom or yeah. Yeah. But then at the same time, you don't want nurses and doctors to have a really difficult time navigating from place to place because, you know, time is really of the essence for them mm-hmm. in a hospital. Sure. There's the difficulty of controlling different types of people and how they should be moved around. And then the visibility of the rooms as well is really important. So if you can think of a, a wing, a particular wing in a hospital, you usually would have like a central desk where the either hospital administrator or a nurse would be there and would be able to like see mm-hmm. basically, you know, the door, the access to every room and yeah. be able to monitor, right? And so if anything happens or if someone sounds an alarm, I don't know, I don't visit hospitals, but basically yeah, they would be sense. able to respond fairly yeah. quickly. Yeah. The layouts must be such that you have accessibility and visibility for your medical staff, but controls for for everyone else. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. That sounds complex. I like it. Yeah. So I spoke with a colleague of mine who actually is a consultant advising on the construction of hospitals. And that is a fortuitous colleague to have. Well, yeah. I mean, we have a lot of. I yeah, have a lot no, of colleagues. I know, I know, I know that you guys <laughs> do. That's pretty great. Yeah. So he told me that it's a lot of planning and design for the designers and engineers involved because a request for proposal for a hospital or even a wing of a hospital will come out. And this RFP will just say, you have this much square footage or you have this much land. Yeah. And we have these requirements. These are the type of rooms we need. This is the type of equipment. And this is how many people we need to service. You figure out how to Lego it all together. <laughs> right? 
and come back to us with like probably the cheapest, easiest to construct solution that you can find. Mm -hmm. But like, that's what they give you. Okay. There's a lot that goes into the planning and the layout. Yeah. And that's only at the rooms, right? So once I start actually talking about the HVAC and the ventilation systems that need to go behind the walls, Mm -hmm. then there's a separate exercise of Legos and pieces that need to come together. Yeah. Yeah. So, So basically, it's a lot to get done in a long period of time, let alone 10 days. That's right. Yeah. One more thing is not just the movement of people, but the distribution of food and medicine right. to each of the wards. So you also have, you know, support staff yeah. that will need to be able to access the rooms easily and directly from wherever they get their stuff from. With The idea is your person should go from low risk areas to high risk areas rather than traveling back yeah. from high risk to low risk. Yep. So that like your circulation needs to be in like kind of like a one yeah. flow. Okay. Interesting. Because you don't want to like go from the Ebola ward to the flu ward. Yeah. And and then you don't, you also <laughs> don't want to have to go from like the, you know, the broken bones ward. And then you walk through the Ebola ward on your way to the cafeteria, <laughs> you know? That's right. That, that's a, that's a poor design. Yeah. So. You should just never have to go through the Ebola ward and then somewhere else. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. If, if you go to the Ebola ward, you stay there, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay, so planning is the first step. Yeah. The next step, as you said, is the ventilation. Okay. So the way that each room is designed is that depending on the function of the room, it's either under positive pressure or negative pressure. Yes. So positive pressure means that the room is highly pressurized, So then when the door opens, it would push air out. Mm -hmm. And when it's negatively pressurized, it doesn't have enough pressure. When the door opens, it would grab and suck air in. So, okay. So wait, am I, (laughs) am I correct in assuming this? So if you have somebody say with like an autoimmune deficiency, you would want their room to push air out so that nothing comes in. You can keep it cleaner. If you have somebody with Ebola or or COVID or or anything that has like a high communicability, then you would want it to suck air in so that it doesn't get out, correct? That's right. Oh, I'm nailing this episode. I'm killing it. (laughs) Yeah. And and so the rooms are like that. You also need to think about some of the public places. For example, the waiting room. Yep. Right? In an emergency room, the waiting room is highly contaminated, anybody and everybody is in there. And you really want that room to be negatively pressurized because you want it to stay contained Mm -hmm. in that room. Yeah. So your hallways, right, Mm -hmm. have to have a different pressure from your rooms so that as you open your doors, Mm -hmm. the air is going one direction only. Yeah. Right. And so this is done by having pressure sensors. Typically on a, on a normal hospital, this is done by having pressure sensors on the walls everywhere. And they're highly sensitive. So the ventilation system would kick into gear immediately once it knows that the sensor has said, oh, the door has opened, you know, air has traveled in. We need to go back to the balance of pressure that we had originally calibrated for. Sure. 
yeah, automated ventilation system. This is obviously a very important component of hospitals. And regardless of what happens to the grid, this needs to function. So this needs its own backup generator yeah. and it needs its own system. So like you said, amperage power yeah. is very important to a hospital. There are too many critical equipment in a hospital that just cannot go down Yeah, if there's a power surge or some type of something. Backup power, redundancies, resiliencies, your equipment Ooh. just has to have a lot of backups. Yeah. You also have HEPA filters. Okay. Which is just a filter that can trap very small particles. Now, the HEPA filter I read, it actually cannot trap COVID. Hmm. It cannot trap a virus, but it can filter particles that can trap it. Okay. So I'm not entirely sure how that works, but basically the filter that would have air going through it from, for example, a COVID ward would be fitted with a HEPA filter. And then the air that has gone through the HEPA filter can then be released out to the outdoors and be safe. So backup power, ventilation, Obviously, when you build a temporary hospitals or you build a prefabricated hospitals, you might not necessarily have as highly sensitive equipment right. be able to configure for these pressures in, that you need in the room. I do know that both of these hospitals in China did boast having the pressurized rooms. Mm-hmm. I just don't know to what extent and whether that would be at the same quality or the same functionality as you would have, for example, in in a permanent hospital. Maybe it just doesn't have as much redundancy, right? Like why would you need a 25-year warranty on something that you need only for three months? Yeah, I guess that there's that. And especially if it is like so purpose-built, right? Then you wouldn't need to have the different pressures on like each room. You would just basically want to have the hallways higher pressure than the treatment areas, Yeah, you might be able to just like physically Mm -hmm. put up a barrier, right? Hmm. And I also looked into a little bit of the retrofitting of hospitals. Okay. Or retrofitting of convention centers and sports stadiums for hospitals. Because that is something that China also did a lot of. Mm. And there was a really interesting article about how they did this. So part of the rooms that they need for a makeshift hospital, whether it's a new building or a retrofit, is you need ICUs, you need your typical wards, you need your radiology, your testing, your centralized admin labs, but you also need the design of airborne infection isolation treatment rooms. That's really important for COVID. Okay. And these rooms basically are the ones that definitely need to have the air contained in. That's where you isolate Mm-hmm. aerosolized particles or people with aerosolized viruses. Right. Okay. And it's really interesting. So they talk about the conversion of a typical space to one of these airborne infection isolation or AII rooms. Mm-hmm. And it can take between two weeks to a month to design, build, and occupy typically. Okay. And that's that's one room. So like yeah, yeah. keep in context that the hospital was built in 10 days. Yeah. Right. So very interesting. And this is more of a, you know, less centralized communist government. We're talking about like a more normal 
democratic westernized mm-hmm. society where things moved very slowly. Yeah. So <laughs> conversion of such a room could take between two weeks to a month. Okay. More complex ICUs and wards with AII can take one to six months. Mm-hmm. You also need to upgrade your fire alarm systems, right? So your building would probably already have fire alarm and life safety systems, but it probably needs to be upgraded Yeah. because you've also got different requirements and response time that you would need to meet for a hospital. Right. Your evacuation methods, right? You're going to have people with less mobility. You're going to have more help. So so all of that, that fire safety aspect is going to need to be upgraded when you convert. Right. All the rooms, like all the wards that hold patients have to be under negative pressure to contain contaminants. But ICUs actually don't have to be by code. Oh. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't really know why. Uh, Well, who knows? But code. Yeah, you can't argue with the code. (laughs) There's also the trouble of procuring equipment. Mm -hmm. So equipment lead time can be three to five weeks for a ventilator, four to six months to procure negative pressure machines. And ventilators, I don't mean like ventilators for people's lungs. I mean ventilators for HVAC. Right. So just that HVAC system can take months to just to get the equipment and then you still have to install it yeah and then we have the use of HEPA filters and you also need to procure those okay typically what happens in probably a a normal facility and this is the rule of thumb is something called mixing ventilation so imagine you're in a ward and you're a patient in a ward so you would have clean air that's pumped in Mm -hmm. And using the momentum of that air, it assumes that it mixes with all the contaminants in the room. Mm -hmm. And then there would be a HEPA filter exhaust, either in the ceiling or behind the patient's bed. And then the air would then go through the exhaust. Particles would get trapped by the HEPA. And that's how the, the air would circulate in a room typically. Okay. Now, it's not necessarily the best idea because mixing means a lot of Well, mixing, right? You're kind of circulating the contaminants and the particles in the room. And that's not maybe the best thing. Yeah, probably not. You're, yeah. Well, I mean, you just basically have to assume your room is... is Dirtier than whatever's coming in. That's right. My room, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But a different technology that has been proposed is called displacement ventilation. Okay. What that does is delivering cold air from the floor. And now cold air stays low, right? It stays low. And so what would happen is it wouldn't rise until it's been warmed by basically the occupants or the equipment. And then it would slowly rise to the ceiling and the and the particles and the contaminants would be lifted with it and be stored in the upper layer of the room rather than circulating because the cold air would still be on the bottom, right? Right. The hot air that's already mixed in with the contaminants would be pressed basically to the ceiling. Okay. And kept there. Right. So you're basically pushing all the contaminants up and then your exhaust would be located in the ceiling and you would have less circulation. Filtering it, yeah. I, I understand that, but you would 
constantly as the air is warming and rising with the contaminants in it, you would constantly have contaminants rising. Well, there's always contaminants, right? Yeah. But it would always only be moving in one direction. Right. Straight up your nose, though. <laughs> like, as, as, a, as a nurse, I don't know. I would rather have contaminants, like, you know, blowing every which way rather than guaranteed to go straight up my nose. <laughs> Anyhow, no, I get it. I, I accept that. <laughs> that that is a preferable solution. I'm not I'm not trying to like cause issues here. I just think it also encourages fewer contaminants to settle on surfaces. Oh, right. Okay, so then you go and you pick up your scalpel and all that and it's clean. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's not necessarily clean. No. But the idea is that heavy droplets might fall and settle, mm -hmm. but the droplets that would have lingered in the air would no longer linger and like kind of whip around the room. Yeah. It would just be lifted in one direction and kept at the ceiling. Okay. I get it. I mean, somebody knows better than I do. That's... <laughs> so this is called displacement ventilation because you're displacing the air, right? You've yeah. got this one direction of air movement from cold, from the ground, to warmer and then sucked out in the ceiling. Mm -hmm. But the problem is there's quite a number of issues with this. For example, how cold can the air actually be before it's not comfortable for any of the occupants in there? Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And how fast can the air actually heat up? Because if you have a window that has sunlight coming in directly, you might actually be warming that air up too fast and then you would no longer have that separation of cold air in the bottom half of the room. Right. And then, of course, you're basically pumping hard air condition into the room, which then changes also the heating of the envelope of your whole building. So do you then have to compensate mm -hmm. for how the rest of your building is also either heated or cooled, right? So yeah. there's a logistical problem there. It's not a completely accepted method, but there's there seems to be some advantages. Cool. So that's that's a really interesting mm -hmm. technology that I came across. Yeah. And so but that was not used in the hospitals in question. That's no. just a cool thing that now you the listener know about. Well, it's one of the things that they're proposing in some of the yeah. retrofit hospitals. Oh, cool. I like it. Yeah. Pull that out at the next dinner party. <laughs> in in 2021. That's what we're here for, yeah. so that you have great facts and stories for your next dinner party whenever you're allowed to do that again. That's right. You're welcome. <laughs> so all in all to say, retrofitting civilian buildings, it requires a lot of coordination between a lot of different parties. Your architects, your engineers, your government officials, right? Your healthcare professionals. It's a really a collaborative effort mm -hmm. for everyone involved. Yeah. And you really need to assess the buildings right away to see if it's even possible to be converted. Right. Given all of these criteria. The Wuchang Arc Hospital, which is one such hospital, the Arc Hospitals is what they called all the converted buildings. Okay. The Shan Hospital was built in 10 days. Yeah. The Wuchang Arc Hospital was converted in 33 hours. Nice. So it went from planning to fully operational in 33 hours. That's pretty amazing. Like... It blows my mind how yeah. quickly things move there. Yeah. Okay, so let's get to the actual hospital. Okay. 
It does include negative air pressure. Okay. It also had this idea of grouping people based on level of risk. So separate wards for people who were definitely confirmed and tested to have the virus, people who are waiting for test results, and people who are just under observation and quarantine. Okay. So you want to separate your different risks. Yep. Just like you would in a normal hospital, but even this one, if it was only for COVID, you still have different kind of hierarchy. Yeah. Like I said, it was a long rectangle with branches off the sides for these different wards. And they had this three-zone, two-channel system, which is just this idea that you had the division between clean, semi-polluted, and polluted areas. Okay. And then two separate kind of channels that you would walk through. So it's basically, instead of walking through one door, you would have two doors. Okay. And that two separation would be the barriers. So you would have a clean barrier and a dirty barrier. Yeah. And then a little vestibule and... That's right. Yeah. And it was actually quite effective because COVID is not actually airborne, right? It's just that some of your particulates, like some of your saliva or whatever, could be small enough that it might linger in the air. Yeah. But it doesn't actually like go up. Like it's it's not floating around. Yeah. It's not like hanging out in the... Atmosphere? Well, yeah, I don't even know. I was going to say... Environment? In in the... Yeah, whatever it is. Whatever (laughs) the air is that you're breathing, COVID's not necessarily there. COVID is in what you and the dirty people around you are breathing out. (laughs) Right? It's in the moisture. That's right. Yeah. There were also water and sanitary systems that had to be constructed. So if you can imagine, the first thing you need to do when you build this hospital is you actually need to bury your sewers first. You need to make sure you have clean water supply. You need to make sure you have your sanitary functions so that your basic public health sanitation is taken care of. Yeah. And then they brought in 35 excavators and 10 bulldozers to just level the site and set the ground. Okay. They did this in 48 hours. Yeah. So, you know, we live downtown Toronto. We've watched them, you know, spend months (laughs) just like, you know, bulldozing and digging and all of this stuff to to lay down an apartment building. So for 48 hours, hours, pretty amazing. 35 excavators. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. They put down 20 centimeters of sand. Then they put two layers of geotextile. Now, geotextile is very common to use now. It's just basically kind of like a type of fabric that stabilizes the ground. So rather than just having your dirt that can have differential settlement all along the, the piece of land, yeah. you would kind of even it out with this geotextile. Okay. And it would be able to support more weight. Yeah. And it's, it's a much cheaper solution. It's very easy to put down. It's just, you know, there are still some authorities, like rail authorities that still don't love geotextile, but like it's very functional and it's highly tested. I very much believe that we would be using more of it. Hmm. Well, there you go. Anyway, so they lay down two layers of geotextile, stabilized the ground, added more sand on top. Cool. And then the next few days, they just poured concrete foundation Took a few days because you got to let it cure. Yep. Concrete takes time. Laid beams on the foundation, and then metal frames were placed on the beams. Okay. And these basically already made steel units were just placed within these metal frames, and you built the building from there. Hmm. That was it. It's just all pieced <laughs> together. Jeez. Incredibly high speed. 
very easy to maintain. Steel structures, right? So kind of like containers. Yep. You know those steel containers? Yeah, yeah, like the shipping That's right. containers, yeah. Similar to those. So they're very flexible. Okay. Easy to transport, light and recyclable. Nice. Right. So all of this over pouring concrete. Yeah. 100%. It was 40 to 60 times lighter than a concrete building would have been, which meant they could save a lot on a foundation. Because huh. remember, their foundation was just like 20 centimeters of sand plus a bit of concrete. Yeah. And the geotextile. And the geotextile. Yeah. But yeah, they got away with a lot with that. Okay. And then these steel structures were also built in a factory. And construct it. So you can build it under a controlled environment. It was quality tested rather than pouring concrete on site. Concrete on site is very variable. It yeah. depends on your weather. It depends on your temperature. You can't control for quality as easily. Yeah. Whereas you prefab something, you slap it down, you know exactly. It. Mm-hmm. You can easily waterproof it. Cool. And 10 days later, you've got a building. Nice. Right? Amazing. Now, logistics that people didn't think about or logistics that you might not have thought about. So that hopefully China thought about. Definitely did. Cool. First thing was building all of these new hospitals and medical facilities led to a sharp increase in medical waste. Yep. So they had to build also temporary incinerator facilities. Ooh, nice. To take care of all the medical waste because you can't mix that waste with conventional waste. So it needed its own incinerator and all of that on the side had its own power generation, all of that. Cool. They also brought in special medical robots to deliver medicine and and do virtual diagnosis and virtual visits. Oh, that is so the future. (laughs) And it protected a lot of the staff because that way it didn't have as much contact. Well, there you go. All the departments in the hospital were equipped with infrared scanners to detect symptoms. Okay. Which now we've talked. So with SARS, right, you were saying that SARS is like immediately you get a fever, like the moment that you can give somebody SARS, you're showing symptoms. But COVID, the big issue that we've been facing is that it's like. Asymptomatic. Yeah. One to two weeks where you can be giving it before you have any idea. That's right. Yeah. So this is not a foolproof measure, but it was something that they did install. Yeah. Well, it's certainly going to be helpful. That's right. Yeah. There was a complete video system that was connected to the general hospital in Beijing so that you could share information, but also so that Beijing could keep an eye on them. Right. As as Beijing does. (laughs) Advanced information systems, mobile nursing, remote consultation, video conferencing, a complete wireless network. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this wireless network because I just found this huge article by Huawei. You know, okay. The, yeah, yeah. The the mobile. Yeah. The surprisingly controversial <laughs> technology company. That's right. Yes. In three days, Huawei installed and commissioned all the network equipment mm-hmm. that they provided for the hospital. And between them and China Mobile and China Unicom, they organized the network planning. So remember when I said, what was it? December was when they knew that COVID was a thing. January 24th was when the actual building construction started, right? Mm-hmm. So Huawei, 
China Mobile, China Unicom, organized network planning. They surveyed, they designed, and they figured out where they would put their 5G base stations on January 23rd. Okay. On January 24th, the site survey was done. The construction plan was formed in the morning and procurement was started. Hmm. On January 25th, so the next day, they started laying fiber cables and installing the base station antenna and the main equipment. The main station was turned on and commissioned in the afternoon. Yeah. Testing and network optimization was done in the evening. Amazing. And they rolled out 5G in the hospital ultra high speed by the next day. That's pretty cool. And within that time, they also ramped up capacity of the existing 4G network by threefold to meet any of the excess demand. Huh. Which is amazing. It is. That is truly impressive. And it's like all of the all of the jokes that I want to make about the data that they could collect, but it's still like, you know, they can do it. They can do stuff very quickly to to meet a need. That's right. right? Yeah. Because there's no there's no bureaucracy, right? They're just like, this needs to get done. Yeah. And this was over the Lunar New Year. They put together a team of 200 employees. Right. Can you imagine getting 200 people from your company together during Christmas? No, like, yeah. <laughs> that would never happen. No. No, that it's, yeah, it is very impressive. Anyway, so this is the construction of this hospital in 10 days. Nice. And like I said, the new hospitals created, so th- there were more than these two. There were a lot of new hospitals, but it created 8,500 beds okay or opened it up and then the conversion of existing civilian buildings to hospitals also opened up 13,000 beds Hmm. and in total China was able to add 22,000 beds right so I'm going to put this in context there were a total of around just under 83,000 confirmed cases in China at its peak they had just under 20,000 confirmed cases. Okay. Active, mm-hmm. right? And they added 22,000 beds. Like they were prepared. Yeah. Like I said, it was staffed by medical staff from the army. So they didn't take away from medical staff from existing facilities that were yeah. still being served. The hospital, Huashanshan Hospital, was open February, what did I say, February 3rd? And by February 13th, they had already discharged their first batch of patients. Wow. The Leishinshan Hospital admitted 2,000 patients while it was operational. Mm -hmm. The overall mortality rate was 2.3%. Okay. So not, that's, I mean, that's quite a, quite a high mortality rate, but that's. They were taking the most serious cases, right? Yeah. And by April 15th, both hospitals were decommissioned. Wow. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, right? It is. It's a lot of effort for basically two months of operation. Yeah. And the question, of course, is how effective was it? Mm -hmm. Right? Did it help? So looking back, the first hospital that was built in 2003, the one that was built in seven days, There was an article that came out that said 99% of the patients recovered and none of the medical staff were infected. Mm. Now, all of these articles come from China. 
I cannot guarantee right. that they're completely unbiased. Yeah. Right? So take that with a grain of salt, but this is what I found. 99% of patients recovered from that one. None of the medical workers are infected. Huge. Right. Compared to what we have where there's been a lot of infectivity to our healthcare workers, mm-hmm. right? Wuchang Arc Hospital, so the converted hospital that I spoke about before, they admitted 1,000 patients. They discharged 500 of them. Not sure what happened to the other 500. Maybe they died, didn't say, don't know. But they cited these numbers as though it was a success story. So they admitted 1,000 patients, discharged 500 of them. There were zero infection rates among healthcare providers and zero, quote, in-hospital death rate for patients presenting with mild COVID symptoms. Okay, so if you came in a little bit sick, you didn't die. <laughs> Which seems... Is what they're saying. Like, what a caveat. <laughs> that, that is a heck of a loose bar. <laughs> uh, I yeah. read this and I was like, oh, so that's what happened to the other 500. <laughs> <laughs> I also came across a study that compared the mortality rate before and after the hospitals were commissioned. Mm -hmm. And basically eight days after the hospital came into operations, the mortality rate significantly decreased in Wuhan and Hubei province. Okay. So you can kind of argue that they were really effective at treating and kind of catching and lowering mortality rate. But at the same time, they also think that mortality rate went down because it got warmer in Wuhan and the virus also didn't right. survive very well in warm temperatures. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can say, but I think as like an engineering response, yeah, definitely. right? It, it is something that... As a public health response, it was mm-hmm. well-intentioned and I would say effective because we didn't run into the issue of running out of beds, yeah. right? Like what you saw in Italy and parts of Europe that was... That was truly upsetting. Yeah, absolutely. And and I should also, you know, just clarify, like Vivian and I are both strongly anti-dictatorship. Yes. This is not, you know, an encouragement of just like, give the government all of the power and then we can do whatever we want. But it it is, I think, you know, telling that when you need to respond to something quickly, you know. It is possible. It, it, it is, is something that you can possible. do. Yeah. Yeah. So it really just takes collaboration. It takes people being willing to work together. So I, I think what a good example is one of our friends works as as a defender for, for unions, I imagine. Yeah, Something she, like she that. works, she's involved with labor law. That's right. And she has been spending weeks in negotiations with unions to figure out whether they can even convert schools. To hospitals. Now we're talking about weeks spent in bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. So this is so in we're we're in Canada and our schools are shut down, right? Yeah. So there's nobody using these spaces, and it has been. I think we're going on a month now of discussions to work out all of the fine little details of can we even do this? And so no well, work- Well, not even the technical details, right? Not yeah. even can the schools be converted, but will the unions let us do this? Yeah, it, it's just, there's all of these, yeah, like tiny little bureaucratic details that we are hung up on trying to sort out as opposed to China, who was just like, oh, 
by the way. <laughs> this makes sense. Do it. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh yeah, this arena is not being used right now. It's a hospital now, right? Make it happen. Yeah. So, yeah. It's very much kind of a wartime response, right? Like you see yeah. this type of response during World War II when you needed to convert schools to hospitals and medical units, mm -hmm. right? It, it was not questioned then. There was a need, but I think, you know, having COVID being this invisible, intangible enemy, so to say, yeah, is much different. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm glad you clarified that. We're not pro-dictatorship. Oh, no, God, no. I'm pro-expediency. <laughs> Vivian just likes to see things, like, getting done. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you learned a little bit about hospitals and kind of how engineers have been able to respond to this crisis. Yeah. Really interesting from all perspectives, from the building, mechanical facilities, and the electrical part. I think this is the first time I've ever really spoken about mechanical and electrical. I certainly, yeah. So it's it's been really interesting to see how that can also move so quickly. You can definitely check out online Google Hoshinshan Hospital. There's a time lapse showing from an aerial view how it was constructed. You can just see all the pieces fall into place. There was actually a live stream over the 10 days where you could have watched it come together. Of course People there was. day and night yeah. in 12-hour shifts to put this together. It was phenomenal, just yeah. absolutely phenomenal. And it just makes me think like... Things are possible. You can build mm -hmm. things quickly. You can. You absolutely can. Yeah. So anyway, thank you for listening. Everyone, I hope you stay safe out there. And I'm sure we're all going to get through this together. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating for us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We really appreciate that. Yeah. You leave us a review and, and it, it helps us help you. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been getting a few suggestions here and there on upcoming episodes. Love to hear from you guys. Thank you so much. Check us out on social media. We are on Instagram at Measured and Metric and on Facebook. Measured and Metric. And our website is probably running at this point. Yeah, our website's good. I fixed it. Yeah. And thanks, as always, to Astronomic Audio for audio engineering and sound design. Of this episode and all of our episodes. All of our episodes. Thank you so much for your support. And as always, remember to measure and metric. <laughs>